Welcome to the Warlords of History podcast. I'm your host, Mark Pimenta. And to part two of the series, joined by Gil Kidron, the host of a podcast of biblical proportions, to continue bringing you the incredible story of Judah Maccabee, the hammer. The Hebrew priest turned rebel guerrilla commander, who in the 160s BC, from the Judean mountainous wildlands around Jerusalem, waged a surprisingly ferocious and effective rebellion against the colossal Seleucid Empire. One that would echo beyond his lifetime, known as the Maccabean Revolt. The origins of which we discussed in part one, a revolt grounded in bitter social resentment, Judean civil discord, its inhabitants divided, between those increasingly adopting the Hellenistic culture of their Seleucid conquerors against the rural masses that remained fiercely dedicated to their traditional Hebrew beliefs, values, and way of life. A situation aggravated by the belligerent actions of the Seleucid monarch Antiochus IV, who in 175 BC began overtly meddling in Judean religious affairs igniting active opposition in the streets of Jerusalem, that in 167 BC, Antiochus stamped out in a brutal fashion, followed by his attempted stamping out of the Hebrew faith itself, believing this to be the source of their defiant ways. Setting the stage for what Gil and I will be venturing into in this episode, the eruption of the Maccabean Revolt as a religious conflict starting in the nondescript village of Modi'in in the Judean countryside, birthed in a small bloody altercation from which a small rebel band emerged that Judah was a part of, and that began unleashing horrific reprisals, civil war, upon the Hellenistic Jewish population, drawing the attention of the Seleucid authorities. But with Judah soon overtaking leadership of the revolt, right from that moment, changing the nature of the rebellion entirely, training and transforming his rebel band into an exceptional guerrilla force, using this alongside a phenomenal intelligence network, the landscape itself, and sheer tactical military brilliance to win a series of astounding battles against the Seleucid armies that had been sent to crush them growing the size and scope of the Maccabean Revolt, transforming it from a religious war into a movement for Judean independence. However, before we jump headlong into all of this, there's a shout-out that I'd like to take care of first, because I have the immense pleasure of welcoming Dylan Gulsby as the newest member added into the ranks of the Warlords of History Immortals. My deepest thanks goes to you and the existing Immortals for supporting the podcast through the Warlords of History Patreon page. And now, I bring you the second part of my discussion with Gil on Judah the Hammer. All right, Gil, you ready? Most definitely ready. Do you want to remind us what we just talked about in the previous episode? 
So when we last left everything off, it was 167 BC, and Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, the erratic and unhinged monarch that we introduced in the last episode, he was returning from his failed Egyptian campaign, having been embarrassed by the Romans' intervention, Mm. and was heading back into his lands en route to the capital of Antioch. This is when he learned of all that pre-existing bubbling resentment between the Jewish factions in Jerusalem, inflamed by his meddling with the post of the high priest. This resulted in all that bubbling resentment and discontent swelling and exploding into civil violence. Yeah. Resulting in Antiochus bringing his massive army in tow to come down and reestablish order in the city. But by brutally purging not only its inhabitants, those that he suspected of being involved in the uprising, but also coming to the conclusion that it was the Hebrew faith itself that was the source of their disobedience. Hmm. And so he initiated a harsh, brutal purge also of the Jewish religious practices, with the crowning insult being requiring the Temple Mount to be defiled with a statue of Zeus. But through his intervention, indeed calming the situation, well, more so pausing it for now, and finally leaving the city, but leaving representatives behind to make sure that all his new harsh edicts were being followed to the letter of the law, not only in Jerusalem, but also in the wider countryside surrounding the city, all across Judea. Yes. So we pick up our story in the undistinguishable little town of Modi'in, just north of Jerusalem. This is one of those rural towns where most Hebrews did not appreciate the fact that Hellenistic practices have been creeping into Hebrew worship through the Hebrew priestly leadership and elite who are working with the Seleucids. So, one day a king's man comes to Modi'in to make sure that the Hebrew worship is done in Modi'in in a Hellenistic way. Maybe he's there to protect the Hellenized Hebrews who want to worship in a Hellenized way. And according to the official story in 1 Maccabees, this king's man, he asks Matityahu first to worship in a Hellenized way to show everybody that it's okay. This Matityahu, Matthias, is a completely anonymous figure at the time, just a rural priest. He says something along the lines of, hell no. (laughs) And just as he says his hell no, one of those Hellenized Hebrews walks to the Hebrew altar to worship in a Hellenized way. And this is basically the moment where the rebellion began. Let me read from the book of 1 Maccabees. Matityahu saw this and boiled over. His kidneys moved and a righteous rage took over him. He ran to the altar and slaughtered the Hebrew and the king's man. He demolished the Hellenized altar and called out to the entire town. All who remain faithful to the Torah and maintain our covenant, 
Join me. The rebellion has begun. Yeah, the rebellion had indeed began. Such a defining moment. But with Antiochus IV setting the figurative table for this religious war to erupt, as a result of all his earlier edicts, outlawing some on the penalty of death, the Hebrews from fulfilling their religious duties and practices. And this was seen as a grave threat, not only to their fundamental beliefs, but most certainly in their minds, also to their very identity and existence as a people, leaving only one part of the recipe lacking, someone for the disaffected Hebrew traditionalists to rally around which Gil, as you mentioned, had finally arrived in the form of Matitiyahu, an elder, a well-respected elder of the village, that emerged as a strong and pious voice, who through decisive actions and words took a firm stance that the Seleucids' attempted purging of their faith just wouldn't be tolerated any longer and that enabled him to immediately gain support. A relatively small band of some 100 inspired followers and warriors that joined with Matitiahu, which Judah would have been a part of, all of whom were hungry for retribution. Granted, in the eyes of the Seleucids, and the Hebrews still supportive of Hellenistic ways, nothing more than an unruly group of criminals, fugitives, Yes, and in this part they do act like like criminals and outlaws. They pretty quickly ransack a nearby city populated by the same hated Hebrew elites, those who have no problems with worshipping Hellenistic deities, and they're not circumcising their young boys. So here... This is a very violent and gory rampage. And Matityahu and his band of brothers, they kill scores of Hebrews. And the official history tells us that they forcibly circumcised scores of young boys. The circumcision, again, is a major point of contention. So this is justified in the official history, and it's called forcible circumcision. Forcible circumcision sounds violent, but it's still a euphemism. We're talking about mutilation on a mass scale. Oh, unbelievably horrifying. So Matityahu and his fellows, they are killing and mutilating Hebrews. So at this point, this is an internal Hebrew affair and not really about independence. Just decades of tensions boiling over in an extremely violent way. And because the Hebrew elite and priestly elite, they're working with the Seleucids and they pay taxes to the Seleucids, that means that the Seleucids need to protect them. That's the deal. We pay you taxes and you protect us. So now the Hebrew elites are calling on the Seleucids to help them against the Hebrew masses. 
However, with Matityahu and his band evading these Seleucid authorities by hiding out in the mountainous wildlands east of Modi'in, northwest of Jerusalem, an area called the Gophna Hills, which became the status quo over the next couple of months. And so here we are a couple of months down the road, in early 166 BC, in the early days of the rebellion, and we have this group of religiously inspired warriors evading the Seleucids, but also popping up on the map every now and again to unleash rather horrific and brutal reprisals on their fellow Hebrews. But then, the Maccabean cause hits an obstacle, because Matityahu ends up dying at this point. And we're not sure why. I mean, he was reportedly quite elderly, so it could have been from natural causes, though it could have also stemmed from wounds sustained in one of their raids. Landing us in the story of Matityahu, laying on his deathbed, weakened, and with his final breaths, commanding one of his followers, Judah, to overtake the leadership of the rebel band. And here we go. The beginning of Judah. The future Judah the Hammer. Judah Maccabee assuming command over the entire revolt. Oh, we finally get to Judah. Yes. Now, this passing of the torch into Judah's hands ended up being the best possible decision. Because as they continued hiding out in the Gophna Hills, keeping hidden from Seleucid eyes, Judah, upon taking the helm of the revolt, immediately began showing himself to be a more than capable commander. Reportedly, initiating a relentless training regiment of the small band around him since it was not at all a secret that they were being hunted by the Seleucids. And keep in mind that at this early stage, his group was quite the ragtag group of warriors, not possessing much in terms of weaponry, probably at best mostly slings and farm implements for close quarter combat. This is a notion that's backed by archaeological findings relevant to the era. Hmm. So, yes, undergoing intense military training. And as we mentioned in the last episode, probably aided by, if not former Jewish mercenaries, at least some people possessing some type of military experience. And most importantly, familiarity with the Seleucid way of fighting, the type of troops that the Seleucids had at their disposal. So accordingly, also taught how to fight against armored adversaries, and which drove Judah to focus on a guerrilla style of warfare, since he realized that it was just a matter of time before they would be confronted, also realizing that these tactics were their only hope of success against the mighty armies of the Seleucid Empire. Yes. And in addition to all of that, setting up a rather impressive informational network. That piece, in my mind at least, is of vital, vital importance because not only would it prove to be such an important piece of the rebellion at this early stage, but throughout the course of the entire rebellion. And I think one could argue that Judah would transform this mountainous landscape that they were hiding out in 
into a natural fortress of sorts, which is mm, nice. an excellent decision because the Gothna Hills are very rugged with many caves and few roads leading in, meaning ideal for conducting guerrilla campaign. Because not only did this provide uh, shelter, but it also, very importantly, reduced or limited the means of enemy approach. But the higher elevations also provided a good view of the surrounding landscape, which allowed the Maccabees to see when the enemy was approaching and while they were still mm. far away. And this granted Judah the time to figure out when it was best to avoid the enemy or maneuver into the best spot to launch an ambush. Let me let me come in for a second because as you were talking about the tunnels, I just remembered. So like 200 years after the period that we're talking about, there's, there will be a similar Hebrew rebellion more up north and also with tunnels and guerrilla war and stuff. And as part of a trip, school trip <laughs> with my daughter, to visit a, a site that they found with exactly such caves that these rebels used. She wanted to go into those caves, so I had to go into those caves where actual Hebrew rebels hid fighting against the Romans, something very, very similar to what we're talking about now. And this was the most claustrophobic place that I've ever been to. It's so tiny and small, and you're going down, and then you're going out in a, in a different place. You have to be like a really committed guerrilla warrior and to have nothing to lose to be, to be able to sustain yourself going in and out of those tunnels. I couldn't wait to get out of there from the moment that I, that I got in. It's completely uncomfortable, in, and it just like presses you in every way. I, I, I don't even know why <laughs> travelers are, you know, are, are told to, to go in. I, I found it deeply, deeply unpleasant. Only the kids, because they're so small. <laughs> for them, it wasn't claustrophobic, but for all the grown-ups, it was horrible. <laughs> That's great context. And it's like, I mean, understanding like a, a very similar location and feel to, to the people that were involved in this over 2000 years ago it's a it's an interesting connection there and and the fact that you've experienced this type of environment firsthand i think is is what a what a great example i don't recommend it <laughs> yeah as <laughs> i mean you're talking about this amazing experience and you're like no get me out of these caves right but i'm happy that i went there for this moment now now it paid off <laughs> <laughs> And yes, uh, things would certainly pay off for Judah and his Maccabean rebellion in this point of the timeline. Because as they're hiding out within the Gothna Hills, seeing where the Seleucids are coming from far off, this is what brings us to the first battle. The first battle that would occur at a site called Labona in 166 BC. And this is an area approximately 40 kilometers north of Jerusalem. So this is wherein the Maccabean informational network gave Judah advanced warning of the Seleucid force of approximately 2,000 militia-type soldiers that were approaching their way. This allowed him to pick the most advantageous site for an ambush in the mountains, drawing the Seleucid force into a narrow mountain valley, wherein he launched a spectacular plan. By this point, his force had grown to about 600 soldiers, 
And what he did is he divided this group of 600 soldiers into four groups. And at the right moment, as the Seleucids made their approach in a particularly tight mountain valley, he sent in one of the groups to block the path of the enemy, two that appeared over the heights flanking the narrow valley and started casting down ranged projectiles, while the fourth group closed off the rear, pretty much containing this entire group and within this narrow, narrow mountain valley. The Seleucid armies and the forces, they were designed for pitch battles, and they operated much better in wider open areas, guerrilla warfare to a much lesser degree. And Judah was a wise enough commander to select battlegrounds that took that advantage away. But he also had a knack for identifying the perfect sites for not only keeping the Seleucids contained, but also the perfect areas for unleashing ferocious ambushes to a devastating effect. And this was ingenious in my mind because it prevented the Seleucid troops from deploying properly. And not only that, but it maximized the effects of the more lightly armed Jews. This resulted in the Seleucid commander Apollonius being killed and his force being destroyed. A momentous first victory, finalized with Judah then taking the sword of the fallen Seleucid commander Apollonius and holding it aloft. Having the sword of your enemy, that's not Hebrew. (laughs) That's the kind of heroism that we see in Hellenistic culture. Yeah. That's to the point that Hebrew culture at the time was completely Hellenized. But there was a Hebrew aspect to it as well. You know, you gave a good strategic, uh, tactical explanation. What they, uh, what they see in general is God is with us. We have God and we have a hero. And I think that this is where the legend of Judah is born. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. For the Hebrews, he is their savior, right? Moshiach Israel. He is an incredible hero that led them to a victory the likes of which they have never seen, frankly. Now more people join in, jumping on the bandwagon. Uh, it must have been a fantastic victory celebrated uh, afterwards. Definitely on the side of the Maccabees, that's for sure, but not for the Seleucids, <laughs> who a couple of months later <laughs> in uh, 166 or early 165, they sent in another militia this time estimated at around three to 4,000 strong, to put an end to Judah, whose rebel force had now increased to about a size of 1,000, roughly. Nice. But Judah doing the same thing as he did before, getting early reports as to the approach of the Seleucid forces and expertly assessing the landscape to, again, find another battleground that would help negate the Seleucids' considerable numerical advantage. So this time, selecting a mountainside path near a place called Beth Heron, a path documented as being so narrow that only one camel could travel along the path at a time. So maybe at best, wide enough for two men marching shoulder to shoulder. This left the Seleucid militia hugely vulnerable. And exactly when Judah struck, unleashing another devastating ambush, the Seleucid soldiers there 
they can't be as motivated to fight as the Hebrews that are attacking them. We know that the Seleucids had no idea what awaited them on that Beit Choron path. But in the book of 1 Maccabees, we have the Hebrew perspective. And here we start seeing a string of speeches given by Judah about how they are few and the Seleucids are the many. How can they beat them? So here is a pre-war battle speech by Judah. If he didn't say it verbatim, he must have said similar things because this sort of speech is everywhere. So let me read. This is meant to inspire confidence in the Hebrews. It is easy for the few to beat the many because it makes no difference to God if our foes are many or few. It is not through sheer numbers that victory is won, but through the power of God. Our enemies arrive with hubris and wickedness, seeking to destroy all that we hold dear. They are coming to kill our women and children and eradicate our way of life. And then he ends with, do not be afraid because we will not falter. God will give us strength to beat them. And then it says that the moment he stopped his speech, he charged into battle and everybody followed suit immediately and the enemies fled before him like chaff in the wind. With that speech, obviously you can already see it in your mind, Judah the Maccabee the movie or Judah the Hammer the movie. That would be like one of those beautiful scenes that would certainly get the audience going. But anyways, uh, all right. So where were we before just laying down potentially one of the most exciting scenes in movie history, the Judah the Hammer movie? Ah, yes, the Battle of Beth Haron, with the Seleucid militia in an extremely vulnerable position, marching along a narrow mountainside path, which was exactly when Judah struck patiently waiting for the bulk of the Seleucid troops to march on by, when hundreds of Jewish warriors, mostly slingers, but others that were simply casting down rocks with their bare hands, that were hidden on the mountain overseeing the path, they all emerged from their hiding spots to start assailing the Seleucids with a lethal volley of projectiles. Wow. In combination with Judah himself leading a frontal infantry assault inwards, targeting the Seleucid commander, who ended up being killed early on to this furious attack. Amazing. And so because the Seleucids were rendered leaderless and taken by complete surprise, they fell into disarray, resulting in uh, around 800 casualties with the rest fleeing the area in a wild retreat. Wow. And so, when news of this triumph spread, uh, Judah's army expanded to more than 4,000 men with recruits starting to stream in from all parts of Judea. Right, right. People who didn't like the current situation wanted to change it, and now there's an opportunity, so more people join. And this is probably when Judah's uh, inspiring speech becomes the stuff of legend. Right. Victory and success breeds a more collection of, of support, additional support, because they start believing that this can actually happen. This is already the second instance that this ragtag group has, has defeated the Seleucids in battle. This is, this is right. granted, it was their militia, but 
not the cream of the crop of Seleucid troops, but still, these are these are significant victories. And right. one of the things that, that I particularly love about this battle, and is another defining feature of Judah's leadership to me, is that he led from the front, yeah. regularly putting himself in the most dangerous positions in battle. Yeah. And I think maybe around here, but maybe even earlier, this is the point that his owing to this, his personal ferocity in combat, it's somewhere, I think, around here that he gains that name Maccabee, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you touched upon it before, derived from Aramaic, um, Maccabat, meaning hammer or sledgehammer. What an awesome name, that moniker, Judah wow. the Hammer. Love it. Wow, wow. To connect this to, uh, I mentioned earlier, uh, Boudica. So I'm imagining like after the first few victories, right, that she had over there in Britain, then when she went down south, the army grew exponentially. So that's kind of of that moment over there, right? This is certainly what's happening now because, again, they would be involved in battle, not too much further beyond that, in around September 165 at the Battle of Emaus. And this is because I think Antiochus IV, he he started comprehending the gravity of the rebellion at hand and he ordered a more serious response. But he was unable to focus completely what was happening in Judea because there were a series of conflicts and rebellions that were unfolding in the eastern domains of the Seleucid Empire. Especially in Persia with the Parthians that were more aggressively encroaching on their lands. So this led Antiochus to lead the royal army out east to deal with that himself. Instead, commanding his right-hand man, Lysias, one of his top generals, to handle the Maccabean revolt. Yes, Lysias is another villain for, for the Hebrews. And this would culminate in the Battle of Emaus, as mentioned in September 165. But this would be an entirely different affair than the earlier two encounters. And this is because Lysias proceeded to put together a much larger and well-appointed army, intending to squash Judah, now sending two generals backed by 8,000 troops, composed of some militia, but also 5,000 high-quality heavy infantry, and about 1,000 cavalry as well. Cavalry, that's a, yeah, that's a game-changer. Yeah, it's a whole new ball game ultimately, for Judah. Every step the Seleucids make, make the rebellion more popular. Nobody wants an 8,000-strong uh, uh, foreign army marching over your land, even though this started as an internal Hebrew beef. But now is the time that it's starting to become the Hebrews versus the foreigners. So true. That's a great point. If they lose... They might be sold as slaves. So this panic is a fuel to the rebellion. And we'll see here, and we know that this is the case in other colonies, in other times, that the colonizing power can't tell a rebel from a non-rebel. For them, all of the locals are a danger, a threat, terrorists. That also makes the rebellion stronger and more popular within the locals. Yes, and a notion that 
had apparently crystallized with the Seleucid general Lysias as well, understanding that the growing threat of the Maccabean revolt demanded a heavier response from the Seleucids. Right, you mentioned the thousands of infantries and the cavalry. Wow, that's something else, yeah. And these troops started, you know, marched out from the Seleucid capital of Antioch towards Jerusalem, aiming for Judah's encampment at a place called Mizpah. But Yuda understood this. Like, he realized that what was needed was a different strategical response. What he employed was some rather advanced and elaborate battle tactics in this sphere. Because he understood the makeup of the Seleucid forces that were bearing down on his camp, and that the Seleucid commanders had also set up a base camp of their own at a site called Emaus, about 30 kilometers away from his. So when the Seleucids marched out, leaving about 2,000 behind at their encampment to defend it, they moved out with a strike force of about 5,000 heavy infantry and those 1,000 cavalry to attack Judah's position. But what they found was when they landed at the camp of the Maccabees was that it was completely deserted. All of that being an elaborate ruse, because the night prior to their approach, Judah had ordered a small group of his men to keep numerous campfires going as if they were still stationed there. Amazing. When in reality, Judah had led a group of 3,000 of his warriors around the approaching Seleucid force to make their way to the Seleucid camp. Boom. <laughs> well said, boom. Yes, because in the dawn of the following day, as the Seleucids came upon the Maccabean camp to find it abandoned, at the same time, Judah and his forces assaulted and demolished the Seleucid camp, eviscerating the 2,000 troops stationed there and taking much in the way of their weapons and provisions. Wow. So a few points here. That are interesting here they start out with uh, their trumpets you know uh, scholars think later became the the shofar where they are imposing fear on the enemy with these huge trumpets uh, coming from everywhere and in the retelling in the history when they recount uh, this battle before how did uh, judah come up with this idea him and his brothers and his fellow they consulted the bible Interesting, the Bible. I would have never thought that would have had utility as a military manual. This is the first instance that I know of that somebody consulted the, the Bible specifically in order to see, to learn something about, uh, about the enemy. Like they have no prophets now. So what they have is the text, the ancient text of the prophets and others. So now there's like an additional theological layer to this rebellion that's fascinating it's interesting right because you have these two competing notions you have, you have like this religious propaganda is the wrong word but this religious motivation that's driving all these actions but then you also have yuda who's surprisingly showing himself to be quite the um quite the strategist because through all that Remember that strike force that the Seleucids sent out? Well, with their camp being destroyed, it was in tinder, it was in pieces, in ashes, and they didn't, they couldn't stay in field anymore because they didn't have the provisions to do so. But uh, so it was, oh. it was from a strategic sense, like a masterstroke of right. brilliance. Like he really did an amazing job there. But what I find completely astounding is 
is the extraordinary level of training and discipline of the Maccabean force because they conducted a 30-kilometer night march over difficult terrain, defeated this sizable entrenched force, and then it made it for unsustainable for the rest of the Seleucids to remain in field. Wow. In addition to that, this proved to the Maccabees and the surrounding areas, towns, people, that they could challenge larger numbers of Seleucid troops right. through complicated plans and tactical ploys. And so this drove even more recruitment to their cause. Yeah. At this point, Judah's leadership and the Maccabean revolt swelled to about 10,000 people. It was huge. Wow. And wow. not to mention that they were way better equipped than before because they had gained that large cache of weapons and armor from their adversaries. Now, the Battle of Emaus was a truly impressive victory for Judah. And remember, that with this, yet another success under the belts of the Maccabees, three surprising victories in a row, certainly decisive ones at that, that this was now causing loud alarm bells to ring with the Seleucid leadership. For Lysias in particular, who was in charge of things in the western portion of the Seleucid Empire, in that the situation in Judea was simply just getting way out of control. So what did he do? Well, almost exactly one year later, in October 164 BC, Lysias himself decided to lead the next attack personally, this time leading a massive force of 24,000 towards Jerusalem, about half the size of the typical royal army but again consisting of high-quality Seleucid troops. But here we meet with controversy, because while I think the Maccabee books 1 and 2 both suggest that there was a decisive battle fought at a site called Betzur, some modern historians are not so sure about that, not really on board with that idea, suggesting instead what I find to be more likely is that perhaps some smaller skirmishes may have taken place near Betzer, but nothing really decisive. And why is that? That's because early into this renewed Seleucid assault, Lysias quite suddenly called for a retreat. And this despite having achieved very little in this most recent endeavor. But it was reported that when he led them back north, that his army was still well intact, having experienced very few losses. Nonetheless, for the Maccabees, used as a propaganda-like victory, with the messaging being conveyed was that Judah and his forces had now turned back a fourth and much larger Seleucid army. When the reality of the situation was that Lysias was required to return back to Antioch because there were succession squabbles at hand. That's going to be a recurring theme, right? Which is going to be a huge theme. Yes, you nailed it. Because Antiochus IV had been killed during this time in his eastern campaign. The evil king. The evil king is dead. And there will be next... Long live the king. But who's the king? <laughs> no. Who's the king? Now they're going to fight, uh, duke it out. Yes. That's exactly it. They're going to have to duke it out. And that's why Lysias leaves, right? He takes his force of 24,000 and head back to Antioch because there are succession challenges happening yeah. to the young boy king Antiochus V, Antiochus IV's right. son. 
Yeah, like with all due respect to Judah and this rebellion, it's way more important the identity of the king that will decide if you live or die or what and what your career will look like for Lysias. Yes, these are huge problems that are causing the Seleucid Empire to implode slowly from within or maybe deteriorate slowly from within. Handing Judah and his Maccabean rebels a time reprieve. Also, an absence of enemy forces, which they used to capture and strengthen their hold on Jerusalem and the outlying regions. Which, I guess, brings us now to the story of Hanukkah. The origins of Hanukkah sparked here. Hanukkah, that's the christening of the temple, like the re-christening of the temple, or re-sanctifying of the, of the temple. So the celebration of Hanukkah has turned through the ages into a celebration that the oil that was found in the temple after the Seleucids left was supposed to be enough for one day, but it was enough for eight days. But that was invented much, much, much later. What's important here is that the Jerusalem temple is finally in proper Hebrew hands, reactivating the temple, and this is proper Hebrew worship. Finally, finally. Now the temple is in the hands of the rebels. So this is a very meaningful political moment for the rebellion and also a very important religious moment for many, many people. I guess this is why this memory survived till today. Even though today nobody talks about the civil war, it's just those evil Hellenists. Do you think that this is the point that the objectives of the rebellion start changing? Because it sounds like this is the point where, okay, they retook Jerusalem, reconsecrate the, the temple, we're all good there, we can practice our faith undeterred. Obviously, the, that looming threat remains of the Seleucids. But it seems, in my mind at least, I'm curious to get your thoughts on whether this is when the goalposts of the rebellion move <laughs> further down um, into something more ambitious, like a broader separatist movement seeking Judean independence from under Seleucid rule. What, what's your thoughts there? The rebellions, you know, of this scale, they're never homogenous. They always include different demographics and factions, each with their own particular perspectives and beefs. And if you can get to a point where the political interests of many populations and factions are aligned and they have a reason to coalesce into one force, that's when the whole thing evolves into a significant rebellion that offers something for everybody. So the rural masses, they want to be included in the ruling class. And the priests... They want to keep worshipping their God in their own way, in their own temple, in their own city. The more militant folks, they want self-rule. And we're also starting to see members of the Hebrew elites who start joining this rebellion because I guess they feel that they can no longer sit in the sidelines or on the fence. And underlying all of this, it's probably a shared sense that now that Antiochus, the evil king, is dead, and we have Jerusalem and the temple in Hebrew hands, there is a concrete 
opportunity to actually establish Judea as an independent Hebrew state. So politically and also psychologically, this is a crossing of the Rubicon. Agreed, absolutely. The Rubicon had indeed been crossed, and now for higher stakes. Moving beyond the religious war that Matityahu had been the trigger for at the onset of the Maccabean Revolt, but that had since ambitiously broadened under Judah's leadership, his surprising successes, glittering battlefield achievements, four Seleucid armies turned back, that enabled the Maccabees to firmly assert control over Jerusalem and Judea. Growing support for the revolt tremendously, as you mentioned, Gil, from the Hebrews sitting on the fence, even from some of the elites. This, with the ultimate goal of the rebellion heading towards uncharted territory, one of independence. The time was ripe, aided by the political turmoil and succession issues facing the Seleucid crown. But with Judah coming to the realization that for independence to become a reality, anticipating the inevitable Seleucid backlash once they got their house back in order, he would need a bolder military strategy. Because, without question, he knew that their fight was far from over. This and more to follow in the next episode of the Warlords of History podcast. And while waiting for the next one to drop, I would highly recommend having a listen of Gil's podcast, a podcast of biblical proportions, which I'll include a link to in this show's notes. Particularly for those of you fascinated by the stories found within the Bible, the Old Testament, Gil does a phenomenal job of breaking down the historical events and social circumstances that led to these stories being crafted and written in the way that we now find them. And lastly, if you want to support the Warlords of History podcast, there are many ways you can do so. You can tell your family and friends about the show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on whichever platform you happen to access the show on. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And finally, you can head on over to the show's website, warlordsofhistory.com where I'll include some additional info, like images and maps pertaining to this episode for your viewing pleasure, and where you can also reach out to me with any thoughts, questions, or suggestions. I would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Theme music from audionautics.com <laughs>